My name is Dana Levin. Welcome to the Exploration Medicine Podcast, a forum where we explore the history, current operations, and research-based future of exploration medicine. Each episode, we'll draw lessons from past explorers, sit down with those currently supporting expeditioners, and talk with the top researchers pushing back the boundaries of what's possible for human physiology. Along the way, we'll cover the physiology of putting a human body into environments it is not prepared for, and discuss the guidelines and research behind how we keep those explorers healthy. Together, we'll travel to the farthest extremes of human experience and learn what it will take to go beyond. In this episode, we're going to learn about some of the cutting edge research that comes out of the exploration field. This interview was recorded in February last year through the internet, so the audio quality is not the best, but the information is too fascinating to leave untold. So here we go. Let's start with, let's just start with introducing yourself. So, um, who are you and what, what do you do? Uh, so my name is Matthias Basler. I'm an associate professor of sleep and chronobiology in psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. It's a long title. Um, basically, I have uh, three uh, main research interests. Uh, one is the effects of sleep loss on uh, cognitive performance and health. Another one is the effects of noise on sleep and health. And a third one is uh, basically space flight and um, the behavioral health and performance of astronauts during long duration space missions. And I guess the latter is the one you wanted to talk to me about. Um, so, I mean, the problem is uh, the, the, the current NASA design mission for sending people to Mars is a little over a thousand days. But there's only four people who have ever spent more uh, than one year consecutively in space. That is, we basically have no idea how humans will react when they are um, exposed to this isolated, confined, and extreme environment, that's how we call it, for a prolonged period of time. So this is, this is why the Antarctic research is so important, because Antarctica is a space analog environment, uh, for the, uh, or the space agencies use it as a space analog environment. It carries a lot of the feature that space flight carries. Um, one is the isolation and the confinement, but it's also an extreme environment in the sense you cannot just step out the door and you know spend hours and hours there. At some point, you're just going to die. Another great feature, I mean, not for the people who are actually in that environment at the time. I've never heard great feature and if you step outside, you're going to die in the same sense. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, it's a great feature in the sense that it is a great space analog environment. It's not a great feature for the people who are there. But certain Antarctic research stations, you cannot be rescued during the Antarctic winter. So anything happens to you, you know, there is nobody who's going to, you know, lift you out or, or, or get you the help you need. And the same is obviously true for flying to Mars. Once you're on your journey, you know, there's, there's really no, no quick way back. Um, you basically have to do the whole mission to then safely return to Earth, you know, after... Um, uh, three three years or even longer. Right. 
So this is why you know we we in in, in our research used uh, several Antarctic research stations to look how people how people's behavior changes, how their physiology changes, how their brains actually change when they are spending a lot of time in in, in those environments. So we specifically used the uh, French-Italian Concordia station, which is a very specific Antarctic station because it's it, it has a very high elevation. So you have not only you know the isolation, the confinement, the extreme environment, but you also have hyperbaric hypoxia there all, all the time. It's like basically high up on the mountain, in you know, the Mount Everest base camp all the time. Mm. And then we, we uh, did similar research, uh, and not all of what we did in Concordia, but similar research in the, in the British Halle station. And we have been, and we continue to do research in the German uh, Neumeier station. And, uh, you know, another great feature is, you know, the, the, in, in those research stations, the crew size is not, you know, very large. It's typically between 9 and 15 people. Uh, this is certainly more than what we would be able to send to Mars on the first mission, but it's also not like some other Antarctic stations where there are like, I don't know, 50 people or 60 people overwintering. You know, that whole mission uh, paradigm breaks a little bit down if you are interacting with so many different people. NASA's design reference mission for Mars involves four to six crew members, so an analog with a large crew is not a great model for this. The crew would be launched like every other space mission so far, on board a chemical rocket and then coast through space for seven months before entering Martian orbit. Because the planets are in motion, however, launches can only happen when Earth and Mars are aligned in just the right position. For example, if Mars is on the opposite side of the Sun from Earth, that's a lot further to travel than if they're both on the same side right next to each other. In that scenario, a spacecraft would have to spend a lot longer in freefall towards its target before reaching it. I'll do a brief discussion of orbital mechanics to clarify this later, but for now, just know that a surface mission means that this tiny crew will have to wait on the surface for more than an Earth year before launching back, so the total mission time would be somewhere around two and a half to three years long. So and basically what we've been doing in, in, in Concordia and in Neumeier, we basically do neuroimaging, that is we look at uh, brain structure and function before people go into Antarctica, and then we neuroimaging them again right after when they return to see whether there are any uh, structural or functional changes. Mm-hmm. And then obviously when they are in Antarctica, uh, well, you know, we have a protocol on a monthly basis, for example, they do a, a perform a cognitive test battery that we speci- specifically designed for astronauts. Um, we are making physiological measurements, for example, we do 24-hour ECGs, look at heart rate, heart rate variability. Uh, which can be a marker uh, for uh, changes to the autonomic nervous system. Um, they are wearing uh, actigraphs, uh, basically, you know, Fitbit-like devices uh, during the whole year, so we can change. We can see whether there are changes in their sleep-wake patterns uh, or in their activity levels, and that's basically what we're doing. So what you're doing is you're putting these small, a small number of people in a remote environment, scanning their brains beforehand, monitoring their sleep and activity during, and then re-scanning them afterwards? Exactly. What are you, what are you expecting to find if you, in that? 
Well, first of all, you know, there's not a lot of research out there that would give us hypotheses. Of course, we have some preliminary findings. Uh, what you would expect is that um, although we know that there is, except for very, uh, very specific and only a few areas of the brain where there actually is neurogenesis, that is, where actually uh, new neurons can be generated, but there's still plasticity in the brain. That is, neuronal connections can be strengthened or they can be uh, built back. Uh, so what we expect to see that is that certain areas of the brain probably uh, become more important in that environment and others are, become less important. For example, one specific hypothesis that we had is that the hippocampus, uh, which is a... Uh, uh, an area of the brain that's not very, only very important for memory, but also for spatial navigation, that that somewhat uh, uh, is deprived of stimuli and, and, and may therefore change, uh, for example, in volume. Let's break this down for a minute. What Dr. Bassner is asking is, does boredom and monotony, like what would happen on a Mars mission or what does happen in Antarctica, cause the brain to become smaller? And if it does, what areas of the brain are affected? There are other studies that have shown us that brain cells and muscle cells are structurally similar, and it's been observed that, like muscle, if you don't exercise it, your brain cells lose their connections to each other and in some cases die off. In infant rats, for example, if you raise that rat in a stimulating environment, like a, a rat version of Disneyland or a rat version of New York City, their brains are far more complex and larger than if the rat is raised in a bland environment, like a rat equivalent of a padded room. This has behavioral effects too, and similar findings are reported in human infants. Since the brain is constantly changing, even as an adult, the researchers wanted to know how significant this effect was in adult humans just from living in a small, isolated environment for several months. Um, but, I mean, again, your imaging is such a versatile methodology nowadays. Uh, we're looking at things like connectivity, which, which areas of the brain are connected to other brain areas. Uh, of course, we're interested in, in structural changes, that is, is there volume less, loss in certain areas? Um, uh, we actually have them perform specific tasks in the, in the scanner so we can see whether uh, the brain is used differently during, during those tasks. Actually, in the Concordia study, uh, we uh, engaged into a collaboration with a university in, uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand, and another university in, in uh, Hobart in Tasmania, because those are the locations where the, where the uh, Concordia over winter crew will fly out from. Right, they start and there. For us, right. For us, it was really important to get them right after they have been in that environment, because we don't know um, how transient these effects are. That is, are, they, are, these, are there any effects? And if so, for how long do they persist? Do they you know, persist for a longer period of time, they vanish right away. So we wanted to get them right away. And then actually we had a six-month post-mission scan. That is, we all got them back to the German Aerospace Center in Cologne. This was a collaboration with the, with the DLR, the German Aerospace Center. And we scanned them again to see 
whether any brain changes that we see right after the uh, winter over, whether they still persist at the six-month uh, post-mission scan. So what did you guys find? Or, or is it still too, too soon? Well, you know, we, we just presented first preliminary analysis uh, at the uh, Human Research Program Investigator Workshop in, in, in Galveston, in Texas, here in the United States. Um, and it's really astonishing what we see. I mean, one thing I have to say, we, uh, we actually had four human phantoms, that is myself and three, three of my colleagues. We were flying to all of these different locations and we were scanning ourselves. Uh, we, we also, uh, because... Uh, the scanner in Cologne was a Siemens scanner, and the scanners in Christchurch and Hobart were GE scanners. Mm. So you ex you expect a scanner effect. Uh, so you can't really compare those scanners in a one-to-one -one fashion. So we needed ourselves basically to calibrate the scans from the different scanners. We also had a control group in Germany at the German Aerospace Center, basically age and gender matched to the people that uh, overwintered in, in the Concordia station. Uh, just to see, you know, what does it mean if you scan somebody in the same scanner like a year later? Are there any changes just to that, you know? In order to draw any conclusions from a research, it is critically important that every possible difference between groups is accounted for and understood. Ideally, the only difference would be the variable being measured. This is one of the most difficult challenges in designing research studies. Because if there are uncontrolled differences between groups, then those unmeasured differences are just as likely to affect the outcome as the variable we want to measure. These so-called confounding variables can invalidate the entire study, and often mean that scientists would draw the wrong conclusion. Experienced researchers like Dr. Bastner know this, and as much fun as it is to have a magnetically generated self-portrait of your brain, that's why he went through so much trouble and expense to ensure that he got accurate data from these MRI machines. Uh, so, I mean, the results are still uh, uh, very preliminary, but we could, we could actually see volume loss across widespread areas of the brain. Mm. Uh, I mean, not all of them, but, but, but many both cortical and subcortical sub areas. And we also saw correlations um, with the cognitive tests that the subjects performed. Um, some of that um, actually was counterintuitive. That, that is, we like a cortical volume loss was actually associated with a, uh, an improvement in uh, in cognitive performance. And but this is really so far we've only looked at volume. So it may very well be that density actually increased in those areas, and that that is what is determining the uh, the change in cognitive what we found, at least in the, in the data we have looked at so far, is that at the six-month post-mission scan, that those effects are basically gone. So it, it, it seems to be reversible, and you know that six-month period seems to be enough for the, for the brain to change back to its original state, so to say. So you're finding that there are anatomical and functional changes, but that these changes are reversible once they return. That's, that's interesting. Right. Yeah, no, we think so, too. We think so. It's very intriguing. And again, you know, we only looked at the tip of the iceberg by looking at brain volume. We, we did so many more things that we can look at and that we connect, can connect to uh, both the volume changes and the, uh, the cognitive and physiological data that we um, gathered in the, while they were in the environment. 
And, and what kind of cognitive changes are you seeing? Are these people, they, they go to the Arctic and then you say they improve, do they come back like super mathematicians or are they... No, you know what I mean? It's, it's on the group level. There's actually not even much of a change in cognitive performance uh, you know, across that whole mission. But it becomes very interesting if you then look at individual trajectories. That is, obviously, uh, there's always people who do better than others. And, uh, for example, if you look at those people who improved their cognitive performance, uh, over the winter over and compare them to the group that actually got worse and then correlate that with their volume changes, that is actually very telling. So this is what we are basically uh, yeah, doing right now, analyzing the data and uh, getting new insights every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the nature of science. Um, one other thing I just wanted to ask you about is uh, there's this concept of the Antarctic winter over syndrome that's been reported of people having almost a almost like a social or cognitive deficit uh, when they're in when they're wintering over. Have you found any correlation with that, or or is that uh, not what your study is looking into? No, I mean we we're looking at uh, we're getting subjective measures from them, and we're also asking about conflicts with other crew members. Um, that is very interesting and very important for NASA and the other space agencies in the sense that um, you basically have, have, have crews and you want these crews to function uh, you know, on their way to Mars and back. So it is very important that uh, you select the right crew and that that crew is actually working as a team. Um, it was very interesting for us to see that, I mean, we were in Concordia Station for two Antarctic, consecutive Antarctic winter overs. The first crew, although there were some conflicts overall, was, was functioning fine. I mean, they all still talked to each other at the end, and um, uh, it was basically, it was a successful mission. The second year was very different in the sense that there was, there were a lot of conflicts um, up to a point where really the, the integrity of that team was completely disintegrating. And it will actually be very interesting for us to see whether, whether that will be reflected in the, also in, in some of the outcomes that we were measuring. Are there any outcomes that you're finding that are concerning or, um, or intriguing or unexpected? Um, I mean, obviously, in and of itself, a brain volume loss is already concerning somewhat, right? Uh, although, although the brain is like a, an organ that, 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 you know, is able to compensate for a lot of things. And in certain areas, you know, others may, may, may pick up uh, and, and, and compensate for that. Um, right now, I mean, just looking at the cognitive data, I didn't see anything, but I would say, you know, I'm concerned that they are functioning at a level that would... Uh, incapacitate them or something. Um, but certainly just, just witnessing this, this really two very different crews, one that you know is basically intact and another one that is, is disintegrating. And really also, in, in the end, that is a danger for the success of the whole mission and, and for the safety of the crew. Um, I mean, it will be very interesting for us to, to really to try to, 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 to compare these two groups and, and to see whether, 
the, the differences in the crew morale were also reflected. Right. And so, so where, uh, when, when are, when do you expect these results to be done, and where would you be? Where could we find them later on? Well, I mean, you know, the the project officially ends at the end of July, and then we have to submit a, a final report two months later. And of course, you know, we'll be writing our publications as well. So, um, I, I think by the end of the year, it's very likely that we will have something published on this. I wish you luck on that one. Um, and and, uh, and so I, I know that a lot of the people listening to or that will be listening to this podcast are interested in conducting their own research or getting involved in more of the exploration uh, medicine aspects of things. Are there is there any advice or, or recommendations you would have for them? Um, I mean, try to first of all. I mean, it, it depends on uh, what stage of your career you are, right? If you're just somebody who, who's, who's, who's starting uh, to study something in the, uh, in the aerospace area, it's always good to try to get connections to, to already established group who are doing research in those areas. Uh, probably to, uh, try to do an internship or a postdoc or, or your PhD with one of those groups. Um, and then uh, I, I guess just follow you know the the agencies and uh, see what they're uh, look at their solicitations, see what they're up to, and uh, you know find out how you can be a part of that. Uh, anybody who is uh, capable and enthusiastic will always find a home in in, in some research institution. Whether um, or not their brain is shrunk from polar exposures. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, there's a lot of people. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other or different space analog environments um, by the by the different international space agencies, for example, high seas uh, uh, on Hawaii uh, or the, uh, the the Hera facility at Johnson Space Center in Houston, where like different kinds of isolation studies are run. And oftentimes we see that you know subjects or people who want to become astronauts that they often you know seek out these uh, these studies. Uh, a to get the experience, and B also to you know to, to get that on their CV. So when they when they uh, eventually apply to become an astronaut, they can say, "Hey, you know, I've already spent some time in these isolated and confined environments, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm good to go. I have the right stuff for this." So if you want to do something like that, then you know, just seek out these different uh, these different uh, space analog environments and see whether you can be part of one of their missions. All right. Well, I thank you very much for talking with, with me today, and I, I appreciate your assistance. Um, yeah, you're very welcome. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, you too. Thank you. Good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. There are indeed many different analogs, and while the projects and availabilities of such sites are quite variable, if anyone's interested in this kind of thing, a quick internet search often brings up the names and contact information of the key researchers. And while Bassner has a lot more data to go through before he's done, the findings at this point seem to suggest that the adult human brain is affected by isolation, but that the changes are not permanent. And it's not clear how these physical changes affect behavior and performance, but Bassner suggested that the volume loss does seem to be correlated with how well an individual does on these isolation missions. 
Well, this finding in itself is not particularly useful since we only find out after the mission that you didn't do well and after the mission that your brain is smaller. That's how research works. If such an effect turns out to be real and we can determine why and how it happens, we might be able to develop a tool to predict who is likely to do well in an isolated setting. That's how research projects feed into other research and eventually become practical in unexpected areas. To be clear, this is just one possibility and in no way conclusive based on the research data shared by Dr. Bassner today. But researchers like Dr. Bassner are experts at this kind of thing. And you can be sure that if there is useful information in this data set, he and his team will find it. At the very least, the reversibility of these changes suggests that they are not an impassable block on the Human Research Program's roadmap to Mars. Once again, my name is Dana Levin, and thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. A link to Dr. Bassner's work will be added to the show website. A special thanks to our production team, Jeremy Seeker and Emily Stratton, and to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the podcast itself. Music is written and recorded by David Keogh. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And, as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.